0: Welcome to STEAMPOD where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host Michelle Ong. My guest today is Stephanie E. Suarez. Stephanie is a PhD student at the University of Houston and is also a National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship Program Fellow. She specializes in geochemistry and geochronology and works with both terrestrial and extraterrestrial materials or rather earth and space matter. Join us as we talk about being a first-generation college student, makeup, geological dating techniques, and volcanism on Mars.
1: Hello, Stephanie. Thank you for joining me today. So your specialization is in geochemistry and geochronology. So for those who aren't familiar with the area, how would you explain what that involves?
2: I'll just explain what geochronology is cuz geochemistry yeah. that's way too broad. So, geochronology is a sort of specialty inside geochemistry. It's sort of the science of finding out how older materials and the materials I work with are minerals. So, these minerals, they're composed of different elements and Sometimes, you know, elements like uranium sneak in. If we think of an atom, like atoms have sizes and they have charges. And if uranium is like the same size and charge, it can just sneak into that mineral. And by measuring uranium and lead, which it decays to, I can then sort of backtrack or back calculate an age. So I've done that. Um with these little minerals called zircons. And you can use other minerals like I do with uh, the Martian meteorites. I use all kinds of minerals. And there's different chronometers. Basically, whatever the mineral gives us, we work with. So with uh, zircons, you would use uranium lead because uranium loves to sneak into zircons. Or um, with the Martian meteorites, different elements on the periodic table so rubidium, uh, lutetium, samarium. So my job is to sit at
1: a mass spectrometer and measure them. So that's pretty neat. That's awesome. So you mentioned that by finding out the accuracy of the dates of these things it helps answer a lot of big questions. What sort of questions would this sort of information help to inform?
2: So with my projects um The first sort of questions we had um, were how old are these the first ever animals or anthropods to ever appear in the fossil record because they you know by knowing how old they are they give us clues to evolution you know when did you know when in our life's history did they appear exactly and once they appeared, you know, how long did it take from it coming on land to breathing on land and things like that. So That's
1: very
2: neat. Yeah. And with my other project, the sort of questions we're asked, wanting to know is, when did volcanoes erupt on Mars? So, you know, the, there's volcanoes on Mars, they erupt, and I can basically put an age on that and you know, um, sort of not only time, when does it happen, but, um, what is the duration it's happening? Like, is it just two little eruptions or is it like five eruptions happening
1: over a longer span of time, just sort of, um, durations? That's brilliant. So what kind of level of accuracy are you able to get when you're actually timing the duration or the intervals between eruptions?
2: Um, so it depends on what machine you're using. I use a, um, it's called an MC ICPMS, and that stands <laughs> for multi-collector inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. And typically the accuracy is about 10%, maybe 10 to 5%, but with something uh, sort of more that takes another mass spectrometer that we have is called a TIMS. It's called thermal ion mass spectrometer. And those can get way more accurate dates. I'm not sure of the percentage, but um, it analyzes a sample longer. It's usually more expensive. And um, sometimes you need that accuracy. Like uh, with my first project, I sort of need that accuracy uh, because we're timing things that, sort of lived that we're living in a sort of a lifespan of like a person so the error bar needs to be as as close as possible so it just depends on your project and sometimes your budget like
1: um, (laughs) we have to pay for these things so yeah yeah that's very neat so you're able to get it down to what decades is that kind of the level of detail Um, usually Plus or minus, like, I mean, the
2: most accurate I've ever, like, you know, 0. 0.8 MA, so about 800,000 years, so, like, wow. but but geologist time and people's time are way it's different, <laughs> way, way different, so for me, if I see, you know, plus or minus 10 million, I'm like, oh, that's pretty good, that's and amazing. someone's like, that's the difference of 10 million years, I'm like, no, that's excellent, that's really good, like, it's, it's a science that's like improving, you know, geochronology, really sort of, you know, the origins somewhere around the 70s, 80s. You know, mm-hmm. that's when commercially we could start buying mass spectrometers. And again, there are some people that sort of study the science of getting it at more and more accurate. I'm not on that side, but it's pretty interesting. And people push the technology up and beyond what it's capable of. So, yeah, yeah,
1: that's awesome. Well, when we're looking at say the millipede that Chris Hadfield tweeted about, you know, four hundred and twenty-five million years, 10, 10 million Either way, that's still pretty accurate when you're looking at the general range of the period.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So that was pretty cool getting tweeted by Chris Hadfield, though. That would have made my week.
2: <laughs> yeah, I I have seen him like sort of in TED talks and. I didn't know how, like, I knew he was famous, but I didn't know how famous until my friend um, who's from Canada was like, he should be printed on money. That's how famous he is. <laughs> like, oh, okay. He's like, he's commander of the ISS, you know, the commander. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, a... it was very surreal. Cause I was just, you know, outside with my dogs on the porch and, you know,
1: it's just like, oh wow. Okay. Like didn't expect that. That's pretty awesome. Cool. So, how did like, what did you see to get into geology and geochemistry? So, I wanted
2: to be a geologist ever since I was in eighth grade. I'm from Houston, Texas, and all the major oil companies are centered here. And um, I live actually next to the refineries, you know, where they, you know, once they get it out of the ground, they turn it into products. So, I always knew, you know, this field equals job. And I come from a very low-income area, and, you know, I wanted a job I enjoyed, but also they kind of strive for, get a job so you never have to worry about money. And usually, you know, they would try to suggest engineering, but I was not good at math. Uh, you still have to be good at math to be a geologist, but I wasn't really hardcore into calculations and stuff. So... Um, so I was in a magnet program in high school that was centered ab- around um, the oil industry. And, you know, I went into college thinking, oh, I'm going to be, a, you know, I'm going to look for oil. So geologists in the oil industry, it kind of starts with them and the yeah. geophysicists. They have to go and find it underneath, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of meters down. Well, actually, I don't know if that's the real range, <laughs> but basically huge amounts of of space, you know, below your feet. And the the sort of, um, the sort of classes for it, I wasn't really interested. Um, But then I got to mineralogy, which is kind of a a big skill to have in geochemistry, because you have to, you know, basically, you're studying how do minerals form and their chemical makeup and stuff and their properties. And, you know, when I got to college, chemistry was the, the class that I fit. That was the first class that I dropped. I mean, I probably was going to get a D or something in it. So, you know, that really just crushed my confidence. And I retook it, I think, twice. Like, I retook it once and it was a C, and I didn't fi- I wanted to be- get better. And then, you know, uh, I, I get all caught up and then I finally get to take mineralogy. And I was like, why wasn't this, why wasn't it taught to me like this the first time? <laughs> so, um, that's sort of my success story that, um, I failed chemistry and now I get to measure isotopes for a living. So I was able to bring it back, but it's just very surreal. Cause I hated it at first because I hated, <laughs> I hated failing. And then, uh, yeah. I end up doing it for a
1: living. That's amazing. So, with the mineralogy, like, how did that? How does that connect back to chemistry for you? So that's where I met my first uh, advisor. She was
2: my mineralogy professor, and I told her I want a project, and she, um, and she's a she studies, you know, mountain belts. She's a, like a structural and geochronologist. Um, I don't study structural. I think very small scale. She thinks very big scale and small scale. And uh, she's like, I got these ashes, you know, from a a collaborator, other collaborator, Dr. Brookfield. And um, she's like, if you can make it work, you know, the project's yours. And it was a really difficult task because she wasn't, you know, um, she wasn't familiar with this kinds of rocks. She studies rocks like granite or like, like harder, cohesive rocks. And these were just ashes, yeah. like you, know, you would get it wet and it's like play, like clay, it's Play-Doh, basically. And I sort of engineered a way to separate it. There's a whole sort of process when you get a rock to, like I said, these minerals, zircons, usually, they're about the size of the tip of your hair, very small. And doing those kinds of techniques we already have um, there's nothing came out or like I said, it would get wet and it would just ball up. So I had to look up a paper. Someone had made like a very expensive apparatus and I said, well, I can do that with, uh, a sonicator peroxide and a Ziploc tub thing. And I did it, and it worked. And my advisor was like, whoa, okay, Like, who else was going to take the time to do that and figure (laughs) that out? Okay. And that's when we started getting data and started getting published. I got published as an undergrad. Um, Yeah, so mineralogy, I think about it. And had I not failed chemistry, I would have had to – I would have taken mineralogy earlier and I wouldn't have met my first advisor, Dr. Catlos. So I'm like, you know, everything happened for a reason. So Indeed. that gave me peace. I used to be stressed out about not, you know, graduating on time. But I was like, well, if I hadn't have failed, I wouldn't have, you know, got retweeted by Chris Hadfield because <laughs> that's where, <laughs> you know, we, I did like several projects under her. It's basically like I did these sorts of, um, I did the mineral separation, you know, 2017, 2016. So it's like, you know, publishing takes time and it's slowly mm-hmm. getting out, so. Yeah,
1: things always happen for a reason and mm-hmm. you never know what that reason is until you actually find, you know, the next stage in your path and it's just really great to know that, you know, you've been able to push through for that, especially with um, some of the personal issues that you said that you had getting to be um, a first-generation college student.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm from Houston, Texas, and I grew up, you know, culturally as a Latina. I mean, you see me and you see, like, I'm very pale and whatnot, but I never even met anyone who was white until I got to college. You know, my high school was 97% Hispanic, So I get to college and that was, that was a huge culture shock. Just being like, what, you know, there's, you know, all kinds of people. Oh my God. And, you know, even though you're in Houston, which is one of the most diverse cities, you're very segregated. So, you know, I had no idea. And then, you know, sort of, I was on a full ride, but um, you know, the pressure, of you know it's uh conditional like if you make a bad grade oh no there goes your future and so that sort of anxiety I had um you know the rigor yeah the rigor you know uh even though I was in AP classes you know I just felt like very unprepared just for the rigor and the like soft skills of studying and in high school I just showed up and got an A, and it, but I never had to like, super buckle down and work for it. And, and then I had mental health issues, you know, I didn't have access to a doctor. Um, I never really had insurance. So in college, you, there's all these services they have. And I was finally, you know, diagnosed with depression. And so it was just a bad tornado of things. I had to take a semester off. Um, in order to sort of like, you know, just deal with that, you know, and yeah. And I pushed through and, you know, to get published as an undergrad, that's pretty impressive. And it is
1: exceptional.
2: Yeah. So those were the things I really struggled with, uh, initially when I first got to college.
1: So what, how, what sort of things did you do to, you know, keep you going during that tough period? Because there's, there's such a lot of pressure, financial pressure, academic pressure, having to adjust to an entirely new environment. So, you know, with all those struggles, what did you do to keep going?
2: Well, at first, I was sort of
1: uh, reclusive.
2: I didn't really trust anyone. Uh, I biked a lot biking really helped me I was so fit back in Austin because I would bike to work bike to school I sort of just did my own thing till sophomore yeah like like third year like I didn't really start coming out of my shell until third year of college that's when I started making friends and saying oh my god you're struggling with this class too um You know, I didn't really like freshman year, I was just too worried about even staying in college. So, um, just finding supportive people and, you know, in all aspects, not only like, you know, you go to college, there's staff there, there's faculty there. It's like a whole little hierarchy of people. So, I sort of found the good people. I found my advisor, I mean, my previous advisor. So, those were ways I coped with it. I just, surround myself with good
1: people. I guess that's the answer. It's fantastic. So did they have a lot of support for, like, surely like there'll be other people in similar situations. Did your college have any support systems relating to that or did you have to go and find the, the mentoring and the support yourself?
2: Well, what, again, with my background, I feel like, they're unprepared or they don't really know what, you know, what to do or how to handle it. Um, I was part of a uh, outreach group. I mean, outreach program. They had a diversity program. Uh, Geology is one of the least diverse sciences. They had a diversity program named GeoForce, and they found me in, uh, what's it called, in high school and they take you to like national parks every other summer, you know? And they have their office, like they're, they're based in Austin. So a big part of going to Austin and going to UT Austin was the fact that I was like, okay, they're there. They get that I'm first generation. They know that these are ways that students fall through the cracks. So um, the previous director, Dr. Snow, I think she she works for USGS now, Uh, She was a good mentor in helping me navigate this stuff. Like first-gen students, um, there's a lot of times where just, you know, you don't know like a social, you don't want to fall into like social faux pas or you don't want to, you know, you're like, oh, how do I drop this class? Or uh, what do you mean I had a one-time exception and I didn't take (laughs) it kind of things. Just little things that, you know but it's not really explicitly told to you unless you had a parent that went to college. Yeah. So I'm glad I had them who specifically were there to not only recruit students in, but to keep them there. Um, Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's one of the things that um, I found at university as well. There's not just, you know, in tech, but you know, still applicable mainly for my school, which is computing. I did computer science. And mm. we had a lot of retention issues. People would be dropping out left, right and center from in the first year. And you know, it was pretty tough trying to get people to keep going because the courses were different. The environment was different. Some people had no idea how to come out of high school and into a university environment where you have to do more independent learning. And, you know, there would have been people as well who were first-generation students but there wasn't much in the way of support or mentoring available to help get people past that first stage of, oh, my God, uni. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's really important to have those sorts of programs just to show you the ropes and teach you the things that, you know, you don't know that you don't know. So it's great Mm -hmm. that you've got your programs like GeoForce to help people with that. So the work that you're talking about with the rocks on Mars and the volcanism is that part of your doctoral studies
2: yeah it was my master's and it's continuing on to be my PhD because I stayed with the same people and stayed in the same program that's great
1: so with the volcanism the work that you're doing with the millipede that gives us a better idea of evolutionary timelines and the way Mm -hmm. that you know we're getting all our different life forms that we have today what sort of information can we get from the volcanism on Mars? Not only
2: uh, when I study Martian meteorites, is it telling me about the volcanism on Mars? It's telling me about Mars's insides. Mars doesn't have plate tectonics. It was a planet and it formed and it just, you know, not, you know, there's no tectonic, there's no recycling like with Earth. We don't, you know, we do have... Um, some, you know, older bodies, but you know, we have much younger land. Uh, a Mars that doesn't know. Also, we have the largest volcanoes on Mars, too. Um, so, to know about, I mean, that in and of itself is pretty interesting. Uh, but again, I study sort of the insides of Mars, too. So you know, these volcanoes tap into the mantle. So the mantle is, you know, one of the layers of of a planet. And, you know, it's kind of like a lava lamp. You know, there's, you know, blobs going up and down. And this is where it ties back to the chemistry. Some elements love to just escape. They're called incompatible elements. And some like to stay. So we start developing all these hypotheses of how did Mars form? And how is it interacting um, inside? And, you know, in addition to the the whole volcanism story, I think I'm more interested in the mantle part. Mm -hmm. Um, So one, it's giving us, you know, mantle dynamics of another planet. It's giving us, um, you know, how, how did planetary formation, how did Mars form in the beginning and what, you know, You know, these are our only pieces we have so far. We supplement it with rovers. But rovers are built, you know, sort of compact for a reason. You can't send, you know, my machines up there. So, you know, the best we can do is get as much information as we can here on Earth with these awesome machines that we have that are, you know, much better. So, yeah, yeah. I can tell about the you about the particular project I'm working on. My PhD project is studying five uh, Martian meteorites that are part of approximately 15 others that we hypothesize to come from the same crater. And the, how we're doing that is one, they're the same type of meteorites, they're called olivine furixsurgatites. They're sort of like basalts from Hawaii with a lot of olivines in them. Also, in addition of me, when I time something, that's called its crystallization age. When did it, you know, sort of erupt from a magma and when did it cool down? There's something called an ejection age. An ejection age is when did it fly off of Mars' surface? So these 15 meteorites, approximately 15 meteorites have the same ejection age. And they have, um, you know, the ones we've dated so far, um, the oldest is 2 billion. And the youngest is around, I want to say, like 400 million. So, you know, like I said, these volcanoes aren't moving around, they're stationary. So, you know, we're, Taking that to be that these were like individual layers that you know is sort of recording this volcano that was active for approximately two billion years. Uh, my you know my role is that not all of these are dated yet, so I uh, so I'm gonna date about five of them. In addition to that, uh, I'll do something. I'll do a new skill called petrology which is really studying the minerals in extreme detail, detail that you wouldn't believe if I told you. We sort of, we make thin sections of these rocks and we put them in other machines and we look at the elements, but basically what these sort of, this sort of data is telling us was um, sort of the story of, of right before it erupted, like, Did it sort of cool down at first and form bigger crystals and then erupted? Or were there several chambers? Um, That sort of part I'm not an expert in,
1: but that's what a skill I'll be developing. That's awesome. So just telling us, just learning about uh, what happened right before ejection, um, just teach us more about how volcanoes work
2: yeah, uh, I think uh, terminology they say is the plumbing system, the so the volcanic plumbing system, like so. So one part of the story you're getting is what sort of plumes, like I said, like a lava lamp. Where are they tapping into, and when it's coming up again, does it sort of chill out here in another little cavern before it erupts, or? Did it interact with another type of meteorite we're seeing? So we just have, you know, it's pretty crazy what we're doing. It's like if, you know, someone gave you a piece of Hawaii from Earth and another piece from Canada and say, here, make a story. Tell us what you know. It's insane. Basically, we just, we have, I think, approximately 200 Martian meteorites and we find more and more, but... You know, to like if I gave you a pile of rocks and say, okay, tell me as much as you know about this planet. It's a huge
1: endeavor. It is, yeah. (laughs) Amazing scope. That's that's very cool work, though. And is it still using the same sorts of techniques that you are using with the zircons, or are you working on other techniques? So, yeah, um, with these
2: uh, sorts, uh, again, we work with what what does the rock have in it. And these sorts of rocks don't have zircons, but what they do have are different minerals, uh, olivine, pyroxene, oxides, uh, plagioclase. And uh, what we do is we create something called an isochron. It's basically, you know, s- simple Y equals MX plus B. And the slope of it is the age. And to make this line, we measure each of these minerals because, um, these elements like to partition in different sorts of, um, proportions and over time they decay. So it starts off as a single line of each mineral with different proportions and then it, you know, becomes a slope. So that's sort of what I'm doing here in Houston. Um, separating out these minerals Um, and um, again using this time I melt the minerals Mm -hmm. I sort of dissolve them in um, my first experiment I was just zapping them with a laser beam in this case I am dissolving them completely taking a rock and turning it into a liquid with no particulates in it at all wow So it's it's way different. Um, That's why I'm glad I did the master's. There's always a debate here in the U.S. about, oh, should I just go straight into my Ph.D. or do a master's? And my advisor here was like, do the master's? And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. So I did it. And I'm real thankful I did it it because it's a lot to learn. Uh, I had never really worked in a hardcore chemistry lab before till I got here. And uh, I'm real grateful for my lab manager, Dr. Ryder, who trained me and taught me everything and was very patient with me. So
1: So why would you not, or what reasons do people have for not doing a master's first? I don't know. Um, One,
2: universities just don't like to put money into people that are just going to go to industry. Usually if you have a two-year degree, you're going to go into industry versus if someone gives you a pile of money and you sort of contribute back to academia. I don't know. It's just becoming more and more common that they're not funding masters. Um, I don't know. To me, it's like, it's, I think it's kind of better if you just sort like what if you you know PhD is a huge commitment like it is average six years. I think it's pretty cool to just do two years and if you say I this isn't for me and you can just leave. So
1: at yeah. least yeah. you get a taste for it first before you commit to the four six. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's interesting. I didn't realize that was a thing. but Yeah, yeah. <laughs> politics. <laughs> might start heading on to some of the other extra questions. So uh, what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your work?
2: Well I don't want to like make stereotypes or anything like that (laughs) but I think makeup is far removed from uh, geology but then again it's not you know you know once you start studying something and you see it everywhere I really like cosmetics. I really like watching YouTube makeup tutorials. I like trying, I mean, it's the same, same thing rehashed, but I I love it. Um, so again, like being sort of a mineralogist, you read the the ingredients and you're like, Oh, this is crushed up talc and mica. Someone Mm -hmm. had a geologist had to find this. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I was trying to think of that question. The, the one thing I can think of was little cosmetics, but then again, yeah. it's like I don't want to make that stereotype that scientists no. don't wear makeup,
1: but I don't That's know. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suck at makeup. It, I came to it late, not very good at it. When I discovered that you could have winged eyeliner pen nibs, it's was like, holy crap. But when I was looking stuff up, I found this blog called Lab Muffin. And she's a blogger in Sydney. I don't know if you've come across it. She's a PhD chemist.
2: it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: PhD chemist who breaks down what's in makeup, and based on what's in it, tells you whether the claims that they make for their wonderful technologies and what they do, whether it's legit. So that's pretty cool. With the tutorials, like, is it mainly about the eyes, like the contouring? What sort of things are you looking at?
2: Well. It's mostly trying out new products. And honestly, the companies will pay the YouTubers to be like, yeah. oh, I love this, but they're getting <laughs> sponsored under the table. Yep. So it's a different climate now, but mostly trying out new things or um,
1: new looks, stuff like that. Cool. Does being does your background as a mineralogist affect the kind of products that you would buy or use?
2: Um, no. I, I think just wearing it use use of it does it smudge during the day kind of thing but I don't think uh yeah Yeah, no it's the same (laughs) ingredients it's the same ingredients
1: yep cool okay and which childhood book holds the most memories for you
2: the first one that I can remember uh in middle school I was trying to think of kindergarten I couldn't remember anything past middle school Uh, was a biography on Princess Diana. Um, You know, further on in life, what I really liked about her was she was really open with her depression and I believe she had an eating disorder. And, um, you know, when I first started talking about uh, my struggles with mental health, a lot of people would message me privately and say, oh, my God, thank you for being vocal. I have this, too. And I grew up in a good environment where it wasn't stigmatized or anything. So I was surprised that people, it was what, 2000, 2012, I was surprised. So for her to be so open back in the 90s was like, whoa. Um, And just, you know, just be, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, um, you know. So that's why I've always been vocal too. So I really looked up to her in that regard.
1: Yeah, she really was inspiring like back then. I remember what a stir it caused with her talking so openly about all these issues that
2: yeah. you know,
1: really paved the way for people being more open to talk about it. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what sort of advice should they ignore?
2: My best advice is to find good advisors. Um, My first advisor was Dr. Katlos at UT Austin. And my second advisor for master's and PhD was Dr. Lapin at University of Houston. And I think they've been so monumental to my success. I know a lot of people say, oh, don't don't credit your advisor that much. You did all the work. Yeah, but, I mean, as a first-generation student, I feel like I sort of depended on them a little bit more. I mean, not a lot, but there's just, you know, you know, college is one world, and then academia is a whole other monster, and mm-hmm. they're going to be your guide, and they're going to tell you, hey, I've done that, don't do that. And I'm still, like, sort of battling with my current advisor who says, don't do that, and I'll do it. And it's like, <laughs> why'd well, you do that? <laughs> uh so now I learned my lesson and I I listen I really listen this time um so yeah my advice for being in geochemistry or academia in general no matter what you study is find those good advisors advice I should ignore uh anyone that tells you you can't or just being negative in any regard or Questioning your abilities, you know, to me, I feel like I had that a lot of, oh, you're behind and all this. But I was like, yeah, but I came from a lower position than you did, you know, economically and socially. So I would just ignore um, any naysayers or negative. Like, you're there because you're interested in something. And for whatever reason, there's going to be a lot of bitter people that just want to talk down to you. I don't know why. I, I don't know, but just ignore them
1: and be with the good people. Yeah. So tough question. How do you find the good people? There's just, I don't know. Like the first,
2: the first good person was cause I took her course and, um, I had friends who worked for her. It, it's sort of word of mouth. Honestly, that's what it is. Um, You'll get suggestions from people, or you know, your reputation does precede you. Um, this, you know, my advisor now, what sort of, you know, hit it off was, you know, I was emailing lots of people, you know, about grad school, and he was the first one to sort of be like, oh, hey, you should come and tour the lab. You know, it was a welcoming sort of thing. So that to me was like okay, this is different. And I don't know, you just sort of click with someone, you know? I, get that's real unex- It's unexplainable. You just click
1: yeah. with advisors. Yeah. You just build a rapport just by talking to them. Yeah. That's great. That's excellent advice. Okay. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Stephanie. It has been a real treat. To learn more about you and what you do and yeah and also really inspiring to hear a bit about your personal journey as well and I hope that it helps others get to where they want to be by hearing your story so thank you and if people want to find out more about you and your work
0: uh, how can they reach out
1: I'm really active on Twitter um
2: I guess my handle will be linked and below It is it's geologist Steffi, mm-hmm. and or they can find my um, email address if they're not uh, acquainted with social media. I know not everyone
1: is. So, yep, great. I'll link those in the show notes. Okay, well, thank you again, and really thank appreciate you for you me. the time. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> loved having you on.
0: Okay, thank you. I really appreciate Stephanie sharing her journey to academia with us and explaining her work. It's great to learn how geochronology can teach us more about the evolution of life on Earth, and how volcanism on Mars can give us more information about how planets are formed. If you'd like to learn more about Stephanie, and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Stephanie on Twitter at geologiststephy, that's geologist s-t-e-p-h-y, and also via email, which I'll include in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. To find out other ways to support Steam Powered, go to steampoweredshow.com forward slash support. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.